Good afternoon. Welcome to episode 8 of the Chop Dinosaur Podcast. I'm your host, John O'Halloran. I release music as Chalk Dinosaur. And today, I get another episode of PT with CD. That's production techniques with Chalk Dinosaur. Today, I wanted to talk about mixing. How I do it, how I approach it, the things I've learned, and um, just wanted to share some of some of that world and hopefully share some information that could uh, be helpful to uh, another producer or mixer person out there. So this is a this is a topic that's infinitely deep. It's one of those, I guess you could say the same about any topic in, in music or the arts. It's infinitely deep. Uh, so it's a, it's a never-ending pursuit of mastery, which is fun. That's, uh, that's what I love about recording and, and music. There's, all, there's always things to learn, and it's always exciting when you can notice uh, forward progress. So I wrote down a little list here, some questions, stuff to ask myself. Um, you know, what is mixing? Uh, basically, it's taking all the individual tracks you have recorded and and balancing them in a way that they work together and they fit together sonically in, in a, the most pleasing way um, or, you know, the kind of style that you want. That's a very basic definition of it. And, and people people balance and fit these pieces together. You know, some, some tracks in today's modern digital recording ages, some songs can have, you know, 100 tracks or more. Uh, if you're doing a lot of vocal layering and you've got a lot of little sound effects and things like that, you could have a project with over 100 tracks. So... You've got to balance all those and you've got to fit them together in a way that sounds good and that all the things that you're supposed to hear, you can hear, um, and that nothing is distractingly too quiet, too loud, uh, painful on the ears, stuff like that. And the tools, uh, the tools, there's a, there's a standard set of tools and then there's beyond that an infinite number of shaping software tools you can have the the basic ones that are pretty much used on you know maybe every track uh you know by anybody who's mixing is uh, equalization you know cutting and boosting frequencies compression which is uh you know one it's a dynamics uh kind of compressor it, it kind of uh equalizes the loudness a little bit of a signal, but the way that I've been kind of using it, uh, is not so much for controlling peaks, uh, it's more for shaping the sound, uh, what do I mean by that? If you listen to that opening drum beat in When the Levee Breaks by Led Zeppelin, that's an example of what compression can do to a drum sound. It 
it kind of squishes the signal a little bit and makes all that room sound a lot more present. And uh, as a result, it makes the drums sound huge. Um, but my experience with compression is that, I don't know, <laughs> it, it's like, uh, it doesn't seem very effective to me for actually controlling a, a peak volume and raising... Uh, raising perceived volume, something like a limiter or a saturator, uh, do a better job at actually limiting peaks in my experience. Anyway, I'm already getting off the rails here. Yeah, we got EQ compression, limiting, which is just a hard brick wall. The volume will not go past whatever point you set. Um, there's width plugins to make things more spread out in the stereo field, like a chorus, phaser, flanger uh you know certain spreader plugins that kind of spread the frequencies out between the two left and right channels and uh you got your delay you know your echo your reverb these things are the tools they use to create space in your recording to create depth and um and then you've got you know overdrive distortion saturation plugins which you know how something sounds when it gets overdriven like a guitar or or distorted a, a bit there's it's a it's a way of making a sound more present in a mix uh it's also a good way of limiting peaks uh separate from using a compressor uh, it adds it adds saturation harmonics or something. You know, the way a distorted guitar really cuts. It's, you can use that in varying degrees in your mixing. That's been a tool I've been exploring a whole lot more lately because it it's just a really great way to get things to pop out of a mix. Um, I'm going to go through my what I typically do... Uh, later in the episode but anyway those are the those are the main tools that everybody's using and and there's you know a million different versions of each one and uh you know it, it, a compressor they're all doing technically they're all doing the same thing but there's you know several dozen different ones you could choose to use in your software um and you know for me i think it's not really been so much that one of them is sonically superior, but what it is is how well I connect with the user interface of that plugin. So certain plugins, the way they're laid out, the amount of control you have, the way it looks, uh, those, those kinds of factors are the things that make me gravitate towards one plugin towards another versus another, because with the stock logic compressor, you know, I believe you could get the same sound as if you used the fab filter compressor or, or a compressor from a different brand, but they're laid out differently and they have different degrees of control. And for some plugins, uh, well, for some people, they like to have control over, you know, a whole ton of different parameters. And other people, I'm probably more one of these people, prefer to have less controls. Uh, 
less choices, less little things you could tweak because it gets, uh, it can get really difficult to actually decide if something actually is making a positive difference when you have all these little minute controls you can, you can work with. For an example, okay, so the Logic, that's the program I use to record. The compressor in that program has got a lot of controls in it. And there's, there's ones out there that have more little things you can control. It's got all the standard attack time, decay time, threshold, makeup gain. But then it's got, you know, five different compression modeling engines that model different styles of compressor like optical, wait, optic, optical? Yeah, VCA, uh, FET, FET. Uh, you know, the different styles of compression that were, you know, made made standard throughout the years in uh, hardware versions. Okay, so there's that one. And that, you can definitely get a great sound on, you know, if, if you put, throw it on a vocal. You have to adjust all these things, and then you have to decide, okay, how much of each of these do I need to, you know... Does it sound better when the release is 2 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds or something, you know, some little thing like that. And then there's, the, the more of those little adjustments I have to decide between, the harder it is for me to mix. So, yeah, as an example, my favorite vocal compressor is a LA-2A plugin. Um, I've used the Waves LA-2A emulation. I've used the universal audio, uh, LA-2A, and that compre that's a compressor plug-in that only has two controls. Really, it only has one. It, it has a, um, it just has a knob that says, you know, amount, peak reduction amount. So it's just one, one knob pretty much. And then the other knob is just like a, a output volume knob. And that's my favorite for vocals. Um, and it's it's so much simpler, uh, but it it just sounds good easily, uh, and and you could dial in those settings on a different plugin, but it's really nice just not having to worry about setting the attack time, setting the decay time, just at turning one knob and moving on. So I tend to gravitate towards. A lot of hardware plugins, hardware emulation plugins, uh, because hardware, like outboard gear, tends to have less control, more limitations on the amount of things you can adjust. Same thing with synthesizers, less parameters of adjustment, which makes it a lot easier to use and uh, more... Uh, it creates a more fluid workflow. Now, it doesn't work for everything, these simpler plugins that rely... The, the simpler plugins tend to rely more on some kind of character that they impart to the sound. They rely on that more than surgical precision. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's producers, people who mix, that prefer both types of things. I mean, I'm kind of the same way with guitar pedals... I'm finding is that I I'm prefer 
I prefer pedals and effects and things, I guess in a lot of areas of life, that do a small number of things or just one thing very well versus something that does a huge amount of different things. Uh, I tend to get a little bit overwhelmed with that sometimes. And even I was talking to my guitar player, John, and I was telling him even my reverb pedal, my guitar reverb pedal, I never changed the setting on it. Just the wet dry amount pretty much. And it's got all these different settings and you can make it sound a whole bunch of different ways. And I just have it set on one reverb setting and I don't really change it. That's not intentional. That's just like what has happened. Like I just found one that kind of worked with, with everything. And then I just stuck with that. So that's what I'm kind of thinking about whenever I, I'd like to get some, some more effects pedals for my guitar pedal board. Some uh, modulation effects like a chorus, tremolo, phaser, flanger, something in there somewhere. And uh, I'm trying to decide, should I get individual pedals? Or, or should I get some kind of multi-effects pedal that does all of those modulation effects? And then you can like save presets and dial in all these things. It's, with the live stuff, I... I've really been compelled to to, to simplify, um, which might not seem like it if you see my live rig, but honestly, that's that's a lot simplified from the first time I played out with the kind of hybrid music that I've been doing for the last uh, four years. I've simplified it a lot since then and, and kind of streamlined the uh, how everything's hooked in and how much can be pre-assembled so that when I show up to a show, it, it doesn't take me forever to hook everything up and there's less things to forget. Anyway, back to my point. And there was, oh, who was it? There was a producer that I was following um, on Twitter. He, he was talking about a similar thing about uh, about enjoying things that do less things uh, but do them really well. And he, you know, he had a mantra of less things, better things. Also ties into the whole minimalist way of thinking, um, which is which is interesting. But I can't really live that life to this too too much of an extent with. Uh, well, you know, we've got to have all this stuff for the uh, for the studio, and uh, that's exempt outside of the um, music realm. I can live that way, but no, got to have my gear, gear. Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so um. Let's see, what do, I, what do I have here? What are the keys to a good mix? Now, <laughs> I gotta make this dis- disclaimer again. You know, I'm in the same boat as everyone, as everyone else, anyone who may be listening. I'm, I'm trying to learn how to do this well. Um, so, you know, I'm not, not trying to sit up here and act like I know everything, because I don't. But, I have learned a good amount of stuff and had have gained some insights 
that could be useful to somebody who maybe hasn't mixed as much. Um, but I'm very much still trying to learn and uh, trying to still trying to match, you know, the artists that that produce music that I think sounds amazing or you know really good sonically. I'm still working to try and trying to get there. Um, so what are the keys to a good mix? When I hear a good mix, now this is this is different uh, based on genre and stuff, but you know, different genres are mixed differently. You know, like well, you know, electronic music. Even within that broad umbrella, there's there's all different styles that are mixed differently and uh but in any in any case i think the the keys are the things that stick out to me that are hardest for me to really emulate or to recreate in my mixes is well, the hardest part is a solid low end you know low frequency low and low mid frequency so you know from 20 hertz to 300 hertz like getting all of that right is really hard because um you know i listen back to some of my old mixes and i compare them to you know reference tracks of music that i think that i would like my music to be on the level of a lot of times my stuff is the bass frequencies are too high they're too they're exaggerated and uh you know you might think oh more bass better or something if you know if you're making bass music but that's not the that's not the case. It's the balance really that that makes something sound the balance is more important than, you know, how loud the bass is cuz if the bass is too loud it'll it'll drown out all the highs and the, the track will sound can sound weaker. Um so getting getting the bass frequencies is, is tough. So something that yeah, has a present and punchy bass and and solid low frequency area that isn't doesn't sound bloated that doesn't overpower the rest of the track so the the song still has like a lot you know enough high high end high frequency energy that that's a real tough balance to get and that's something I'm always always trying to improve upon and uh, it's it's a puzzle and I I'm very much still trying to put that together and uh and you know that that goes for both rock instrumentation you know standard rock music and electronic music any music with bass and a kick drum getting those low frequencies that's that's been the hardest part so far for me and uh yeah i guess the high frequencies too getting them um present and you know, punchy, sizzly, but not painful. That's key to a good mix. Not painful. <laughs> uh, yeah, that might be one of the, the more important things there. Don't want to hurt your listener. Uh, but it's tough because you have to have a balance. You know, you want to, you want to, if you want to have a rocking song and you want to have something be sound, you know, 
polished and sizzly and, uh, you know, just hi-fi. It's real easy to go overboard and, and make things just painful. And that's something you got to try to avoid. That's something I'm trying to avoid. Painful, painful highs and bloated lows. So, I mean, the other keys, obviously, is can you hear everything that you're supposed to hear? Can you hear that stuff? Is the thing that is the focal point of that point in the song, is that jumping out at your ear? Uh, is that commanding the sonic place of your song, the sonic stage? And, uh, yeah, another thing is width, the stereo width of a mix. That's also another thing that's, I listen to some mixes and they just sound so wide and, and it's, uh, you know, I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do that. Cause that's another thing that you can easily overdo and it can, you can lose impact in your mix and you can lose clarity and focus by overdoing it with stereo wideners and, and widening effects. And, uh, you know, one example would be with a lead guitar. Say you have a lead guitar part or a lead guitar solo or something. A lot of times for guitars, I'll record it twice. And then I'll, I'll pan each take all the way to both sides, you know, to the left and right. One take to the left, one take to the right. Uh, I'll, I'll pan them both hard all the way. And that creates a very wide effect. It sounds like the guitar is like surrounding your head. Um, but it doesn't always work because, it, you know, sometimes it works better just to have a center mono mono guitar solo and then use reverb and delay to kind of widen it that way to create a wider sound. I love using a stereo delay on, you know, guitar solos, vocals, um, you know, a stereo delay that just goes, you know, left ear, right ear, left ear, right ear. It really widens up a sound and makes it sound really big. I'm a fan of the uh, Waves H delay for that. Although any stereo delay would work. And uh, same thing with, with vocals too. You know, the more layers you add to a sound, the bigger it's going to sound, but the less clarity you're going to have. At least with, with something like vocals and guitars. Um... So, where was I going with that? Oh, yeah, widening. Yeah, I, I don't know how, how some people do it so well. I'm trying, to, I, I'm trying to think of an example. Maybe Oliver. Have you ever heard Oliver? I think he's, he's got an album called Full Circle. My cousin Bobby, a.k.a. Bobby D, on uh, who appears in some of our music, he told me about it, Oliver, and... Um, that's a standard that that's like a reference for me of, you know, 
a standard of how good I want my music to sound. And I guess this brings up another important point, which is references. Having references can be very helpful for, you know, staying objective with how is your mix, is your mix actually balanced? Because when you're working on a mix for a long time and you're hearing, you're hearing these, the way it sounds over and over, your ear is getting used to the way it sounds. And especially if you're doing a long session, you're not, you're not, your ears aren't fresh. They can very much deceive you into thinking that it, it is balanced. And then you might listen to it the next day after you've slept or listened to some other music. And then it seems obvious like, um, you know, this is, this is out of balance. So having references is good to kind of keep you centered, keep you grounded in what you know you think sounds good. (laughs) So if you have, you've identified music in the styles that you like, you know, I have a couple artists in different styles that I, I use as references for my mixing because these are albums that, you know, there would be albums that I, I just love the way they sound. And, um, so I know that that's a good reference point that like, if I, if I'm getting too out there with a mix or something, I'll be able to tell when I put it up against one of these reference tracks, like I'll be able to tell, Oh, my bass is too loud. Um, you know, the kick is not loud enough. Uh, the, the symbols are too loud. Um, in comparison, you know, you, and it's not like one one size fits all with this, but you can at least have a, a get a general idea of how loud the different elements are in a mix that you, again and again, think is great. Your reference track. So I mean, if I'm making if I'm making like electronic type music, um, I guess it depends on the style, but Todd Terjay. Uh, he's got an album called It's Album Time. I really like the way that album sounds. That's one of my favorite sonically, I mean, and musically, but just the way it's, the way it's mixed as uh, is, is really, I really like it. Really like the balance. Um, so I'll reference that Daft Punk. I'll reference their stuff because that's, you know, obviously very classic. The way their mixes were Wolfpack, I love the way their makes it sound. You know, that's not electronic, but um, it's got a similar punchiness, you know? Um, so I reference that. I reference Air. Sometimes Air is another band that just had the production down so well. Oliver, that's a new one. Oliver, uh, really love the production on, on his stuff. Um... I don't know who else I reference for, for rock and funk stuff. I really love the way Lettuce Fly, that album. I love the way that album sounds, so I I use that as a reference sometimes, kind of check um check my mixes with to see how it how it um compares. And obviously, you know, it's not gonna be a direct one-to-one comparison, but you you're gonna get some idea if something's out of whack, really out of whack with yours. Um or if you're having trouble deciding, is the bass loud enough? Like, is the 
are these things at the, you know, in the right ballpark at least? So yeah, let us fly. That's a big one. Um, the later Ween albums, those are, I love the way all of those are produced and mixed. I always thought those albums were really sonically, really well, just well produced. And uh, so I would use those references for my more song-based stuff like uh, Follow Me or Sediment or Passages. My Morning Jackets, uh, later albums, well, not necessarily their later albums, actually, but just like, let's see, It Still Moves and Z and uh, Evil Urges, uh, Circuital, 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 whatever. Uh, yeah, they were one of my big, big song rock, rock influences, so for rock stuff, I would reference that too, because I, I love their albums, and um, anyway, I'm going to stop going on about referencing, but honestly, it's something that I sometimes have to convince myself to do, because I'm afraid of what I'm going to find. Uh, if I've been working on a mix for a long time, in the vacuum of my head, in the vacuum of my studio, and I have avoided referencing it i become scared to reference it because i don't want to i don't want to have to uh go back to the drawing board or like or go back into it or something but you know it's always a good idea and it's always what do you have to lose you know nothing so i, I think i'm talking to myself here use your references and um What's another question I have written down here on this piece of paper that I've arranged here? How does the song arrangement factor into a mix? Ah, uh, yes. A very non-technical part of mixing, but very, very important in the end result of a mix. The arrangement. So, what a, I guess arrangement, that's kind of an ambiguous term, but what I mean by arrangement in this context is what instruments are doing what and how many you know different sounds are going on at the same time and the arrangement of the sounds and included in that i think you know is the actual notes of the sounds too um if you've got two elements that are both moving around a lot like in, in the same note range or the same frequency range like you've got one thing going and then you've got another thing going something like that, you know, pretty common thing. Just kidding. It's if you've got these things competing uh, for attention from the ear, uh, you know, your mix is not going to be it, even if those are sonically balanced, it's not going to come through as clear as if there was one focal point and the other sounds were supporting that focal point the same thing goes for the bass and the kick drum frequencies um you want those to be complementary so if you've got a really busy bass line sometimes a less busy kick pattern is going to be better for the song or if you've just got just long sustained bass notes that 
aren't moving around much or anything, maybe a more complex kick pattern could, could work there. And actually, actual, uh, in terms of frequencies, you know, if you've got a really weighty kick, like a really subby kick, you know, with a long, longer decay or something, just like a, a kick that's just big, your bass is going to have to be balanced with that somehow. So either the bass could be higher in frequency, it could be um, kind of just not hitting, not, you know, it could be playing on all, all the space when the kick isn't playing. I mean, this is where sidechain compression comes in too, but I mean, this, the kick drum sound selection. Okay. I'm talking about electronic music right now, but picking a kick sample, it's very, uh, it's very important, uh, in how your, your bass the base of your mix is going to is going to come out. So I've kind of been recently messing around with shorter kicks. Uh just punchier, just more like blips, like deep blips, just like boop instead of like a boom if that makes sense. Uh in tracks where I have like a, a heavier bass line or like a a bass line that's moving around more experimenting with that to see, you know, is the kick really just like muddying up the bass? I, I don't know. I gotta experiment to try it out. Um, I should probably just, I should, all right, no, I'll, I'll save it. But um, the low mid frequencies, that's a, that's also a tough area to get right for me. Low mid, the muddy frequencies. Um, I find these to be between, you know, 180 and like 500 in that area. Uh, a lot of times there's a lot of mud, um, but if you cut too much of that frequency, it can sound thin. So it's it's tough to get it's tough to get a mix sound solid, but not muddy or exaggerated in any of the frequencies. So usually, I don't know what I've been doing is making sure that I'm I'm high pass filtering things that don't need lower frequencies. So high pads, like high synth pads, like string synth pads that are up high. You know, I'll cut I'll put a high pass filter, 12 or 18 dB filter on um you know, at 500, maybe even higher. Kind of the technique I was I would use is I'd play the mix I'd have the the EQ open for the sound I was filtering. The ba I was filtering the bass out of so the the pad, the string pad. And then I'd move the filter up higher and higher as the mix was playing until I could notice uh, in the context of the mix playing that that sound was sounding thin, like that I could start noticing it sounding thinner. And then I'd back the filter off just a little bit until it so I couldn't tell a difference really um, in that one particular sound if it was being filtered or not. And a lot of times it would end up being, you know, higher than I would have expected. You know, oh, I can filter, I can filter high pass at 600 hertz 
for this uh, for this pad, and it I'm cutting out all this low frequency mud that wasn't contributing anything to the mix, and it was it wasn't contributing contributing anything to the sound to the pad sound. So there's so many there are so many sounds in a mix that have that kind of unnecessary low and low mid frequency stuff. Now, again, you could go overboard with this and and make something just make your mix sound like thin and potentially painful by cutting out all the low frequencies, but you know, there are certain sounds like a tambourine or something like I don't need you if you experiment, you know, you could cut all the way up to, you know, 10 kilohertz and the tambourine, you can still hear it and it still sounds like a tambourine and it but if you, you know, undo the that filter there's all this low frequency stuff that could be interfering with the clarity of your piano or your guitar or something like that. So sidechain compression, that's another tool that's helpful for, I mean, it's mostly in electronic music, but I do use it in all types of music. Um, How can I explain this briefly? So compressor reduces the sound, the volume of a sound, based on a threshold you set. So when the volume crosses this volume threshold you set, it starts reducing that sound's level. And a sidechain compression, instead of the threshold being activated by the sound uh, itself, you're using an external sound to trigger the compressor. So uh, what a lot of people do is they'll put a compressor on their synth pad or something, or on their bass, they'll put a compressor, and they'll set the trigger, they'll set it to the kick drum. So every time the kick drum hits, it reduces the volume level of the bass or the synth pad that you've assigned it to. And that's what gives that ducking, like pumping sound um, when you hear something that's just like, mm, uh, <laughs> mm, I'm not going to try and do it. I'm not, I'll just, I'll just play something. Okay. There's an example. So you can use this in a very obvious way as you know, in effect, the pumping effect uh, but you can also use it in a very subtle way that people aren't even going to notice. But when you turn it off, you will notice. And um, man, I was I was working on a on a track the other day. I think it was I think it was a a TV track, not a track dinosaur track. But man, I when I turned the sidechain compressors off of the bass and the synth, the kick. It, it sounded like the kick just disappeared into the mix. And then when you turn it on, the kick is just like punching through. Uh, it was such a, such a obvious effect. It was, it was pretty amazing. I, I was thinking about playing that comparison because, because it was so, it was so pronounced, but it's not only limited to kick. It works, it works really well for, for balancing kick and bass because then you don't have the kick drum 
and the bass drum fighting as much for for the bass frequency. So you get a little more definition, you get a little more punch. And uh, but you can use it for other things too. So some of the things that I use side chain compression for, aside from kick and bass, are kick and you know all side chain the synth pads or the synth leads. Sometimes I'll I'll side chain literally everything to the kick or the kick in the snare. So everything is ducking under those things when they hit. Um, sometimes I'll side chain. Okay, I'll set up. I'll use it for vocals. I'll set up a bus. So I'm sending the vocal to an auxiliary track, uh, an effects track, and I'll put a really long reverb and uh, a long delay. And then I'll put a high pass filter at about like 500 hertz. This is like a super spaced channel. So I'll send my vocal to that. But you know, yeah, and then I'll and then I'll put a sidechain compressor com- <laughs> sidechain compressor on that space track. So every time that the main vocal sounds, it reduces the volume of that reverb and delay. You know, it so that doesn't get covered up. So it doesn't cover up the main vocal. Okay, because it does that make sense? It would be like, man, I could if I could just do an an example right now, oh, I can't set it up while I'm doing this. No. You know what? I'm going to. I'm gonna do it right now. Alright, we're back in business, baby. I, I wanted to set up this example because this is an effect that I use a lot with, with the voice to make it uh have more space and uh you know a way to use a lot of reverb and delay but still have the vocals be intelligible and come through clearly. So what I've got here, I set up a channel, an effects channel, just like I had I had mentioned with a lot of delay and reverb. Let's hear that channel. Here it is. Okay, so now it's on. So you can hear that the echoes and reverb are kind of covering up my voice. Um, it can make it hard to understand what's, what I'm saying. I could turn that off. So now if I turn the side chain compressor on, you'll hear what happens. So this is with it off. Now I'm going to turn that side chain compressor back on. And now the side chain compressor is on. So you've still got the echoes and delays but they're dipping down when my voice sounds. And what this does is it allows you to have a lot of reverb and delay on your voice without your voice being lost. And this works for, you know, any lead part. If you need more clarity, but you also want to have a lot of delay and reverb, try sidechain compressor on the effects bus. Okay, that was fun. I'm going to turn that off. Anyway, I use that on, I use that on uh, vocals. I'll even use, I'll, I'll even use it on a snare drum sometimes. Uh, I'll have a, a reverb channel for a snare drum, separate reverb track, and then I'll sidechain compress it to the snare. So when the snare hits, the reverb, you know, is compressed, and then when as the snare decays, the reverb comes up in volume and uh you get like a a 
big snare reverb sound, but you're not losing the punch and definition of the snare with the reverb. These are things that can be used in any style of music, but I guess a lot of these more extreme mixing things are are uh, usually in electronic music where you're which kind of has just a more surgical sound to it. Um, yeah, mixing. Talk about electronic music mixing a little bit. Let me tell you about the importance of sample selection. It's important. I'll tell you what, I when I first started... Uh, listening to electronic music and and trying to produce it i was going nuts like uh, trying to figure out how to like how are these people making these things sound so big and like punchy like how do i do that i i can't do it um and it was really it was pretty maddening trying to figure out how to do it you know not saying i've figured it out but i've i can at least make stuff that i think sounds good now whereas back then i was i just was really racking my brain trying to figure out how to do this. And what I came to learn, one of the big things that really jumped my production ahead was I just, I got some better drum samples. And then I realized, okay, so before that I was, I was spending a lot of time processing my drums, like, you know, doing a lot of compression and a lot of processing to the drum to like try and make these samples sound better where what I really needed to do was just get some better sounding samples. Um, and then immediately my mix sounded way better. Um, and I didn't have, you know, with little or no processing, um, there's a ton of, there's just so many good samples out there now. And of course there are, you know, there are things you can and should do in some cases to process your drum samples, but I, th I think the extent of my processing on a drum sample is if it's a kick or a snare, I might add a saturation plugin, not something over the top, but saturation can be really good at, at, uh, making a sound more present or louder, more punchy, like cutting the peaks off, um, so giving you more headroom in your mix to bring that sound up more in volume can make a sound more, yeah, more present, pop out of the speakers more, uh, but in a very transparent way. So you don't even, it doesn't even sound really any different to you necessarily. Like you don't notice that it has a saturator on it, but the sound is more present and um, it sounds bigger. So that that's pretty much all I'll put on a kick. Sometimes an EQ to cut out you know, for some tracks, I'll experiment with, with cutting out the low, really low sub frequencies out of a kick. Like I'll find a kick sample that, you know, the main meat of the kick is at 60 hertz. And then I'll cut out everything, you know, put a high pass at 60, cut the things below it. Or, or sometimes a kick drum that's even higher in pitch and cut, cut below, you know, 80 hertz or something. And then I guess a lot of... Some some kick drum samples have two. They seem I'll need to cut out around two hundred hertz 
to reduce some of that low frequency, low mid frequency mud that may be covering up the clarity of, of the bass or maybe conflicting with the fundamental of a snare drum, fundamental frequency of a snare drum. On a snare drum, I'll usually cut out, you know, I'll cut cut out the sub frequencies. Um, probably probably cut around 150 hertz. Um, and then both with kick and snare, I'll experiment with cutting cutting around five, somewhere between four and 600 hertz, cutting and, and seeing, uh, seeing what that does. Sometimes there's some undesirable muddy or boxy frequencies between, um, you know, three and 600 or four and 600. Yeah. And a good way sometimes to test for a problem frequency or frequency that you don't want is to create a narrow banded EQ setting and boost boost you know all the way that frequency and then scan the frequencies of that sound and when you have a narrow band and it's boosted you'll come up upon certain frequencies that are obviously like offensive um and those are the ones that you can then look at closer and try reducing those in a much gentler and subtle and maybe a little bit of a wider band. Um, but yeah, sometimes I won't use a, a narrow band. I'll use a, a wider band and I'll scan through the frequencies. And if something sounds like tubby or muddy when I get to a certain place and it makes the sound the opposite of what I want, then that's where I'll take the EQ band and, you know, cut that frequency. There's a lot of, uh, yeah, so usually I'll use a parametric EQ, like the visual EQ for the the cutting, cutting of frequencies. And then if I'm going to be boosting any frequencies, I like to use hardware emulations. So what I've been using recently is the Slate Digital plugins, um, because I, I subscribe to their plugin subscription. And it's been... Uh, it's been great to have those and, you know, have them legally and feel like I'm not stealing them. But uh, it's all hardware emulations, so I really like the SSL-styled hardware EQs. Like, I've, I've used the Waves one. I've probably used some other ones, too. But the SSL EQ I like. The the Neve EQ emulation is, is very... It's got a... The thing with those plugins is they they have character, so it's not so much a surgical thing. It's more of just adding character, adding frequencies with uh, with some some kind of character. Because um, sometimes you know if I boost a frequency in the Logic Stock EQ, it doesn't sound you know it's not the same as boosting it with you know the Slate Neve EQ. It just for whatever reason. Um, that, that EQ reacts differently and sounds different. Um, more broad strokes, you know, paint with a broad brush here in the words of, uh, Mike Tomlin, paint with a broad brush. I think he was saying that, but yeah, there's, uh, you, to add frequencies, I like to use hardware emulations, things with, uh, modeled after gear with character, you know, 
this brings up a great, great question. Well, it's, it's actually not a great question, but it is a question, a recurring question. Like, computers are so advanced and so powerful, yet they can't emulate tape faithfully. Like, they're, they're getting closer, but it's still a very distinct difference when you actually rec- record something onto a tape versus when you apply a tape emulator to something. It's a very noticeable difference, um, and it's, it's just completely different. And uh, tape emulation, I use a lot of it. Um, I like what it does, but I also do a lot of actual tape dubbing on cassette for certain elements of mixes. Like, um, like if you listen to the song, if you listen to the song Signal Fire or listen to yourself off of the album Passages, for those songs... I recorded the vocals. Okay, so I would I would record the vocals onto my computer and I'd, you know, edit them and mix them and stuff. And then I would ru- and then I ran the verses of those songs out of my computer into a cassette recorder, recorded the vocals of the verses onto a cassette, and then I recorded them back into the computer and put them back in the song. So the cassettes have like a cassette sound. Um you know, still clear, like cassettes it's not like cassettes completely suck in terms of their quality. Like they, that's how they released all music for a little bit or not all music, but you know, that was like a main way to listen to, to music for a while. So, you know, it was, it, it's different though. It really cuts out a lot of, a lot of high end, um, harshness, any digital harshness. And it also, if you drive it, drive the input a little bit, it can add some of that saturation that sometimes is, you know, it can be subtle, but it can really be making your sound more present and fuzzy in a real nice way. Um, Obviously, you can go overboard with it, but I I really like doing that. It's kind of a pain in the butt, but uh, yeah, run it. Sometimes I'll do that with lead, lead synth parts. I'll run it through a cassette and that'll kind of tame out. I'll, I'll kind of drive it a little bit through a cassette and that'll just round off all the, any harshness and it'll kind of add another layer of overdrive to the sound that can make it pop out a little more. Sometimes this sounds sweet and is exactly what it, that sound needed. And other times it, uh, it doesn't work. So it's not, it's not a one, one, uh, one stop shop there. You know, there's no silver bullet. That's what I've been, uh, that's what I'm always learning here. You know, it's just a bunch of little tiny or tinier silver bullets because yeah, it's just this, uh, continuous, continuously growing bank of little, bits of information and little techniques that you pick up that you just uh, continue to grow until you can, I don't know, and that's how your skills and your, your, your results increase. And you learn something with every mix. Okay, I learn something with every mix. Sorry, I keep saying you. Like I know, you know, like I know what's going on 
with you, but I, I don't. But for me, I learn something with every, with every mix. And that is why, you know, what's, what do I think the best way to learn and to improve with mixing? What do I think that is? And one of the major things is just tons of experimentation and tons of volume, not literal volume, but, you know, tons of output. Because, as I said, I learned something with every, with every mix. Every mix is a new chance to try and make everything fit together right and to make a mix that just sounds really good. Every, every new track you work on is an opportunity to apply the things you've learned before and to experiment with new things that um, you might have heard in a, some piece of music somewhere since your last recording. It really is just like seemingly everything else skill-based. Um, it's just a matter of repetition and uh, exploration. And um, so I think that's, that's one of the main things for sure. Perhaps the biggest teacher. That being said, I've learned a lot of stuff on YouTube. There is an incredible amount of information on mixing and all things music on, on YouTube, which is pretty, pretty amazing. It's a pretty amazing resource. The downside is that because there's so much, there's, it's not all great quality. It's not, uh, you know, it's not vetted information. So you've kind of got to pick through any garbage and find the stuff that's actually, is actually good. And, uh, you know, whenever I watch videos, I usually skip through to the end to kind of see what, what they're getting at. Like if it's a video about how to make like a sweet bass synth sound, I'll skip to the end to make sure that I actually agree that, like, yeah, that, that is a sweet bass sound before I watch the video. Cause sometimes yeah, if you don't do that, you'll end up watching a 15-minute video and then by the end you're like, I don't like I don't like what what this is sounding like. Like why did I just, you know, watch this? Um Dang, I was talking about sample selection, how that's makes one of the biggest differences in how your mixes sound. And um yeah, that's that's true. Uh check out the vengeance sample packs for electronic music those are those are so universally used and they're they're really great it's really great tools to start start uh, doing it i mean i still use some of those i also use splice sounds splice sounds is a platform where uh you can just purchase individual sounds and um so you can kind of just pick the ones you want. Cause sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll buy a sample pack and it'll have like a thousand drum samples in it, but either, you know, 20 of them will sound like so minutely different that they could like, or some of them are too, are just so similar or it's just like you have to weed through a bunch of stuff. So with splice, you can just pick the ones you like and, um, so I use that for some drum samples. I really like that. And then oh, I love it on Splice. Certain artists are now releasing sample packs. And Oliver, that guy or girl, I don't even actually know who Oliver is. 
but that artist released a sample pack on Splice and I got it because I was like, oh, I bet this is going to be great because he's got great sounds, great production. And it is. It's an awesome sample pack. I love it. Um, it feels like a treasure, that thing. The the kicks and the snares and the loops, they're so good. And there's not too many of them. There's just a smaller amount of really good sounding samples. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited to have found that. And, um, yeah, I hope to release my own sample pack someday. It's on the list. I'm going to do, yeah, I'm going to do some sample packs. They're not going to be standard sample packs. They're going to be more like tools. Uh, that didn't make sense. All sample packs are tools. But, for example, the first one I'm going to do is called Shaker and Tambo. And it's just... uh Shaker and tambourine loops swung straight at a few different tempos, a few different variations. Um, because I always use tambourine and shaker samples. And, and for some reason, the loops, you know, on my computer uh, and the ones that I've, I've gotten before, they're not always great. I always end up going to record it myself because for some reason they don't sound great. Um, the ones that I had available. Uh, so I would just record it myself and then I, I end up always adding shaker and tambo. Any part that you want to elevate the energy of, those are always good things to add. Almost. I mean, I don't know if I've ever, ever been in a situation where I'm like, get that tambourine out of there. Get that shaker out of there. It's ruining everything. No, it's usually subtly elevating everything. There's an, there's a there's another insight. Tambourine and shaker <laughs> subtly evol they subtly elevate everything and uh I use them. Is it possible to overuse those things? I don't know. I feel like I use tambourine and shaker a lot. But that's just like a man, it's just like a dang old ride symbol, man. It just, like, does something to the sound that sometimes you want. Turns out I want that a lot. You know, bongos. I love bongos. I love adding bongos. Uh, okay, bring me to another little mixing tip. If you're mixing electronic music, um, sometimes it's it can be tough to get your, your drums to sound uh, organic. You know, they might sound too mechanical, or you might want them to have a little more life to them. Shaker, and a, you know, a recording of a shaker or tambourine or any percussion, adding organic percussion on top of electronic drums is a good way to kind of introduce a human feel to it and uh, but still maintain the punchiness and uh, bigness of the electronic drums. So I've got a host of uh, percussion instruments that I'll, I'll use a lot just to kind of humanize the electronic grooves sometimes and just add a little more texture got uh, two different shakers tambourines wood blocks some shell shaker thing cowbell always doing that stuff always doing it so yeah um what else do we have here making mixes sound bigger 
this is one of the biggest. How do you make your mix sound bigger, more present, wider? These are the questions that 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 uh, I continue to pursue all the time. Um, questions I'm always reaching for. Um, and you find out a little bit more the more you do. I, I'm continuously learning little new things. Um, and I'll tell you, most of it's through experimentation. And, you know, when you watch stuff on YouTube, which is, is a really great resource, you need to apply that and use that and, and ex- explore that stuff through your own productions. Because a lot of times, you know, I'll watch a video on YouTube or something and that will, that'll give me an idea for something to explore that I might not have even been thinking about at all before. Um, like, you know, for a while I wasn't thinking about saturator plugins at all. Just, uh, I never used them. And then I found out uh, through the internet and through experimentation that saturator plugins, like soft clippers and like tape uh, emulators and drive plugins, like uh, the Sound Toys Decapitator, those things can make your mixes sound a lot bigger when you use them on on stuff. <laughs> like the kick like the drum bus and then the synth lead and the vocals um on the entire mix like I, i'm currently in the phase of of experimenting with that possibly overdoing it um as is pretty common when you discover new things you kind of have a tendency to overdo it like when you figure out you can use different fonts and then you and then you use some crazy fonts and I think it looks really cool. And then you go back and try and read it later. And you realize that it's actually harder to read with this font. The same thing with the the mixing effects. It's real easy to go overboard and to use something to overuse it. But, um, you know, I'm aware of that. So I, I think I'm, I'm okay. But, in any case, you know, you've got to push those limits to, to understand what the effect can do for your mixes. So, in a way, you know, I'm doing trial and error constantly with, with Chalk Dinosaur mixes. Um, you know, just trying to make them sound as good as I can and, and move on and, and then listen to them later and, you know, apply the things that I've learned from, from previous tracks onto the new stuff. What am I doing here? What am I doing? Oh. I'll tell you, it's really hard to make a mix sound big, but not have it sound bloated. What do I mean by bloated? Just, it's hard to describe. There will be mixes I listen to, you know, professionally released mixes. Um, you know, they sound really big. And punchy and present and uh, open. And then if I'm trying to match that level, and a lot of it's mastering too, which I'm going to have to probably do some separate thing on that, separate podcast on that. But, uh, 
yeah, if I try and match that level of perceived volume to, because you don't want your track to be sound noticeably, you know, quieter. Uh, well, you know, it depends on your music. Some people are taking taking a stand, but um, you know, for a lot of my music, it's kind of loud and loud and proud. And um, in order to to be relevant, I guess with with the rest of the mixes that are people are re- releasing, it has to you know I'm trying to match their level, and a lot of times when I do that, it's hard to get it to sound open and still be that loud. It sounds just bloated is the best way I could put it. Like, uh, I don't know. It's probably something I'd have to show you an example of. So, I don't know. What more do I have to say? Buses, using buses. That was a, that was a big uh, step for me to get comfortable with in mixing, using buses. What is a bus? So in your digital audio workstation, your DAW, you've got your regular tracks, your instrument tracks, you know, guitar, kick, vocals, etc. And then you can create auxiliary tracks, which are called buses. And um, so what you can use those for is I've got, you know, four different drum tracks, let's say. I've got a stereo overhead, I've got a kick, a snare and a floor tom uh what i can do is i can i can assign the output of those tracks to an auxiliary track or a bus and what that does is it sends the audio from all four of those tracks it sends it all to one track called the drum bus i mean you could name it whatever you want but in this case, it would be the drum bus because all the drums are going to this one track. So then I can adjust the volume of all the four tracks at the same time by just adjusting the volume of the drum bus. I can apply effects to the entire drum group, um, to the drum set as a whole. And um, that's something I do. I, once, I, once I got comfortable doing that, you know, I, I never, I'm, I'm doing a lot of bussing. So I send all the drums to its own bus, send all the vocals to a bus, I might send the backup vocals to a different bus, uh, send the guitars to a bus. It's good for saving computer processor power too, because before I used buses, you know, if I had six guitar tracks, I would, uh, and I wanted to have a tape emulation on the guitar sound, I'd have I, I would put it on each six of the guitar tracks, and that's going to take up a lot of processor power compared to if you have all the guitars going to a bus, and then you have one tape emulation on the entire group of guitars. If that makes sense, why would I have six guitar tracks? Well, this brings me to something I forgot about earlier, and that's that's uh, layering. Which uh, is really fun. I love layering. Um, I love wearing long underwear under my shirts and wearing a medium layer under my outer shell. Um, I love wearing many layers of clothes. uh, But also, I love layering sound. And um, what kind of sound layering do I do? Uh, 
vocals. I love layering vocals. I think it sounds so cool whenever vocals are doubled, tripled, quadrupled. Like, um, you know, you all know the sound of a doubled vocal. It doesn't sound like, like a regular vocal. It sounds like, uh, oh, I just love the way it sounds. I'm thinking, uh, like Pink Floyd or something, Dark Side. Uh, so what I'll usually do, what I'll often do, so I'll have a, a center vocal, the main vocal, that's just panned center, and then I will record two more takes of the part, and I'll put those panned to the left and the right, and it, it sounds different depending on how much you pan them to the left and the right, but that kind of widens out the sound of the vocal. So there'll be three vocals singing the same thing, the main one, and then the double and the triple. And I'll put the double and the triple down lower in the mix uh, and, you know, kind of raise or lower the volume to achieve whatever sound sounds good for that particular song. Or sometimes I've had uh, good results singing the vocal four times and instead of having one in the center, I have two on the left, two on the right, all singing the same thing as closely as possible and um, mess around with the panning. Sometimes a complete hard pan on all four to the left, two to the left and two to the right sounds good. That'll be the widest sound. And the closer you pan them to the middle, the more kind of pillowy and kind of chorusy it'll sound um more like an ensemble it'll sound and uh i do the same with with harmonies um so if it's a three-part harmony <laughs> hypothetically i could have four vocals doing just the main vocal melody for four vocals two pant to the left two pant to the right and then I could have four more vocals doing one of the harmonies, all singing the same thing, you know, two pan to the left, two pan to the right, or all pan to one side. And then I could have four more vocals doing the next harmony on top of that. So I could have 16 vocals, uh, vocal tracks for one three-part harmony. Um, because I think I just love the way it sounds. Um, but like I said before, that, kind of heavy layering doesn't always work. Um, if you listen to the song, uh, what's it called? Deeper Than My Mind, which is a song I released on an album called Star Blazer. That's a song that uses both. And that's what I'll end up doing a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll use both of those uh, techniques. A lot of times I'll have the verse be just more of a bare center vocal. And then I'll have the chorus be a very multi-layered wide sound. So whenever the chorus hits, it just sounds bigger and wider and more enveloping. So with that song, the chorus, I'm, I mean, the, the verse, I'm pretty sure is just a, a single mono vocal. Um, and then when the chorus hits, it's, I don't know how many layers. It's probably a lot of layers, though, um, of, like, very soft, very soft, airy vocals and just a lot of layers of it. 
And, um, and then, you know, the second time the chorus comes around, I've got the soft, airy vocals mixed with a louder, more projected vocal on top of it. Uh, plus the harmonies with those two different textures. There's, there's a lot of vocal layering in that, in that song for the chorus, but the verse is just a bare, a bare solo vocal. So each of those, you know, techniques has a place, but it is a lot of fun to layer. I love layering. You just got to be careful when you layer that you don't, that you're aware of any frequencies that may be building up. So sometimes with vocals, the main vocal, well, with any vocals, I'm cutting out bass out of it. Um, if it's a song that has a lot of bass and low mid frequencies in it, like to begin with, I might be cutting the vocal at 200 Hertz, 18 dB filter, maybe even 250, 250 Hertz. Um, and then for every track that's doubled, that's for the main vocal. If there's like a main center vocal or a main two side vocals. And then for every vocal beyond that, I'm cutting higher. I'm cutting maybe at 330 or something uh, to keep the vocal from creating mud. So I'll leave the, the main vocal full, you know, pretty full. But then I'll be filtering out a lot of bass out of the, out of the, all the harmonies and doubles and triples and stuff. I also cut the bass out of any long reverbs, any long delays. Make sure I cut the bass out of those usually, you know, 300 at least hertz. Um, definitely if you're layering bass sounds, you that, that, that's where you really have to be careful about frequency buildup and frequency competition is, is in the bass lower frequencies. So layering your bass sound is very effective for creating an interesting sounding bass. You just have to make sure that each layer is doing, has, you know, has its own place and is doing something, um, unique from the other parts. So an example would be You know, if you had one, a lot of a lot of producers, they'll have one track that is their sub bass track, and it'll just be a pure sine wave. You know, filt with a a low pass filter, filtering all the high frequencies out above like a hundred or something, just like this subsonic layer. And then above that, they'll have like a mid bass layer that's providing like the presence of the bass, I guess, like the meat of the bass, not the sub, like the sub and the meat. Um, and then they'll have like another layer that is only providing higher frequency texture, like the sizzle or like grindiness or, or the kind of the treble of the bass. So they kind of got bass mid treble sometimes. And you, you can, it doesn't have to be that either. I'm just, using that as an, as an example of how you can layer bass, but you got to make sure that, you know, that high trebly layer doesn't have any sub frequency in it. Um, that is going to interfere with your, your sub layer. And, uh, you know what? Sometimes that can lead to some pretty cool sounds. Sometimes it can lead to nowhere for me. 
Um, yeah, it's, I, I've noticed in, in really good productions, really good mixes, a lot of times they're very minimal, but the sounds are better. <laughs> so they've just used less sounds, less layering, but better sounds and better notes. <laughs> so that's, it's really tough. I've, I've tried to explore that a little bit more of, you know, my natural tendency is to layer and layer and make the mix like sound huge, like as huge as I can. And like, uh, really blow my beans, um, mix wise, but because it's really hard not to do that sometimes. I just want a mix to sound like epic and larger than life. But a lot of times, the the mixes that do sound bigger and larger than life have, you know, actually have fewer elements in them, um, or they're more strategic elements. Um, it's not just like everything happening all at once, which sometimes I do. So... <laughs> You know, the less things you have that are fighting for your ear's attention, the less things that are competing for the same frequencies, the the better the mix is going to be, the more clarity you're going to have, the more space you have, the better, the more, you know, each sound's going to have more impact if you have less sounds. And it's really hard to do. It's really hard to make something with only a few sounds that sounds full and and good, and big, and interesting. Yeah. Okay, I kind of went over. I guess I'll, I'll go over um, a couple more mixing techniques that I commonly go to. I mean, with guitar, a lot of times it's just a, a parametric EQ. Is that the word graphic EQ? I don't know. Just like the stock EQ in, in logic, you know, with the picture <laughs> that you can create the band. Is that a parametric EQ? I don't know what it is. It's just a regular EQ. Um, I'll use that to cut out, you know, the unwanted sub frequencies and, and low frequencies that aren't, that aren't needed. You know, so if it's a, if it's a really high part, I'll cut out a little higher. If it's like a low rhythm part, you know, I won't, maybe won't cut out as high, but so I do the EQ, cut out cut out the unneeded uh, low frequency stuff, and then I'll put a compressor on it. I like the Waves C1. It's just their basic compressor. To be honest, I, I just put it on the what's the the preset classic compressor, and I find that that most of the time is great. That works great. So I've been doing that for years. Um, Waves C1, I like that. But again, it's like not doing anything that the Logic compressor can't do. It's just the interface is easier and like connects with my brain better. So I use that. Or sometimes I'll use a hardware emulation plugin, most commonly in 1176 emulation. And I've used the Waves one, CLA76. That's really good. And then... Now I use the the slate um, the slate one. 
1176. It's a very popular rock compressor. I've thought about getting a real one. Um, but man, I don't know if that, I'm starting to lean. I, I was getting into hardware a little bit. I got a, got some, well, I did get a, I got a pretty nice outboard hardware compressor, but and the workflow, it just changes the workflow so much because in order to use it, that means I need to send audio out of my computer and then record it back into my computer in real time through the effect unit. So what that means is if I wanted to run a mix through this hardware compressor that I have, that is a nice compressor, and my song is seven minutes long, so that means I need to get the settings right on my compressor. I have to get them to a point that I feel confident in like printing. And then I run the whole song through seven minutes. And then if I don't like it, you know, I've got to do it again. I've got to set the settings and then wait another seven minutes for it to record. So it can be a very time consuming process. And sometimes, you know, I've found that I, I've, I end up just not using it that much. <laughs> what I do use it for uh, a lot of times is not the whole track, but certain elements like um, drum loops or like keyboard or something like that. Smaller things. But, you know, is it worth it? I kind of want to just get better in the box. In the box meaning in the computer. Like being able to craft the sound using the tools on the computer. There's something exciting about using outboard gear. And and it is true that a lot of times it has a sound and an immediacy of a sound that's like, oh, that sounds good easier. But that's not to say that you can't get a good sound, a totally passable professional sound in the box. So also the fact that I'm also scared of getting too into outboard gear because there's so much of it out there. A lot of it's very expensive, but now they're coming out with a lot of really great cheaper options too, but I don't know if I want to have a big rack of external effects. Um, I'm kind of trying to cut down on stuff and just like, thought I, I'm a little stuff phobic but um you know if I was in more of a permanent location I think I would I would be more on board to, with the outboard uh I I'm sounding like I'm I'm hating on outboard gear and I'm not because I I have some of it and I I do like using it um but I also think I was kind of putting a little too much weight into it and uh, kind of fooling myself into thinking that, you know, it was somehow imparting some magical sound and, and I don't think it was. I think it might have been a workflow thing. I kind of use this compressor kind of as an overdrive box for some stuff. Um, but also I might not, I just might not have used the right stuff. Like if I, if I get, okay, so if I get a, a Clark Technic LA-2A clone or, you know, re remake, that's a very affordable LA-2A, hardware LA-2A that 
which is the plugin that is my favorite to use on vocals. Is that going to be worth it? I don't know. I'm curious. That's the thing. Uh, anyway, hardware, hardware, software debate could go on. I mean, hardware, hardware's got the mojo, but you can get the mojo in other ways. I think I, and the workflow, it's gotta be the creating a less convenient workflow is that has a kind of a big effect. Um, makes me less likely to, to use stuff sometimes. Uh, anyway, I'm getting off, off the rails here. So guitar, yeah, I cut the bass, compress it, usually send the guitars to a guitar bus. So all the guitars are going to the same one track where they're all being combined. And then on that track, I'll probably put another compressor. This, this time, you know, on the, the guitar bus, I'll probably have an 1176 compressor. I'll probably have an EQ to filter out again any low frequencies. Uh, and then uh, usually a tape emulation plugin, either the Slate one um, or uh, the Waves Kramer one or the Massey Tapehead one or. Yeah, there's some other ones, I think, but. Put a tape emulator. Guitar is one of those things that responds pretty well to the tape emulators. I mean, and real tape, but that's a pain in the buttocks. Um, usually for drums, you know, I've got the drums all going to a bus. Usually I'll have the kick and snare going to one bus. And I'll have the cymbals and the percussion going to another bus. And then I'll usually sidechain the cymbals and percussion to the kick and the snare bus. And then I'll run the output of the kick and the snare and the cymbal and percussion bus to another bus called the drum bus. That's just all the drums. So I can control the kick and snare independently. I can control the cymbals and percussion independently. And, uh, but then I also have the drum bus that controls everything. Um, and then usually I'll run from the drum bus where all the drums are going. I'll run that to another bus, an auxiliary bus, uh, that is a highly compressed, uh, drum bus. So it's called parallel compression. So I've got just the regular drum bus sound. And then I've got this other track that's playing at the same time with the same audio, but it's highly, highly compressed. Um, and then I just mix that in and, um, to a level where the, you get that compressed drum sound, you know, like that when the levy breaks sound, but you're, you're also getting, um, you're, you're not sacrificing the transients of the clean drum take or clean drum tracks. Uh, yeah. So parallel compression there. Usually, you know, if it's like a more of a rock song and not like an electronic song, you know, I'll uh, usually put a tape emulator on the drums, kind of shave off some peaks. Once again, saturation is a super useful plugin uh, effect for for drums, percussive instruments, soft clippers, and uh, soft clippers and saturation. 
I've been finding lately uh, can really, really increase the punchiness and um, presence of, of drums in particular, but anything else, like lead parts, anything you want to have popping out of the speakers. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I, I think that's everything I had to say. This is an insanely huge topic for me to try and talk about um, because there's, there's so many different things that go into mixing. Uh, probably will take the, microsco- might do. <laughs> take the microscope out on some of these more specific subjects um, in subsequent episodes probably shorter episode a little bit less rambly a little more focused hopefully but um you know what i haven't done one of these podcasts it's been two weeks now because i missed last week because i uh well because i just missed it no excuse but um yeah i guess we had yeah i don't know what happened anyway i'm back for this week and you know what i'm not going away so, remember not to eat McDonald's. Um, you know, unless you're truly, uh, truly in need. Remember uh, that if you eat four peanut butter cups, uh, you've exceeded your daily recommended max intake of sugar. And I, I learned that uh, when I looked at the package, and. Uh, you know, I was a little upset about it because I love peanut butter cups, but, um, you know, candy and pop will kill you. It's poison. Okay. It's poison, but it tastes so good. But you know what? Hey, you know, why don't they have diet candy? Man, I, they have diet pop, which, you know, debatably is better for you. I mean, obviously sugar is... That's for sure, you know, really destructive. All, all the refined sugar uh, that's in a pop, just like a so highly concentrated. And, and candy is the same way. But with pop, they've got diet, which has no sugar. And, you know, they're, they're still, it seems like there's some debate on, you know, if these artificial sweeteners are also bad for you. And I would, I wouldn't. Assume that, you know, they're probably not doing anything good for you. Uh, Be better off without them. But I would still think that it's better than sugar. I'm not sure. I'm not a nutritionist. But why don't they have like a diet Twix or something? Diet diet chocolate that, that has artificial sweetener in it. Then I could like kind of feel better about eating more candy. I don't eat that much candy. I'm making it to sound like I eat a lot of candy. I don't. But when it's around, like Halloween time, when everyone's got leftover candy, uh, yeah, I, I eat some candy. Anyway, you know what? I got something exciting going on this week. I guess, yeah. So, uh, it's on the calendar, on my calendar, uh, on Thursday, uh, gonna have someone coming over to record some saxophone on a song that i'm finishing up uh his name's winston he plays the saxophone for a pittsburgh jazz funk band called 
the Funky Fly Project. And uh, I've been watching him for a couple years now, since 2016. That's the first time I saw him at Farm Jam. And uh, yeah, I'm excited that he's he's going to come over and play on one of my songs and get to uh, get to talk to him about music and I haven't I haven't asked him yet but ho- hopefully he'll be he'll be into the idea of uh talking a little bit on the podcast while he's over here. Um that would be cool but I I, I got to ask him and see if he's he's interested in that. I have to remember that not <laughs> not everybody you know wants to have a recorded conversation as much as I might want to do that with them. Um yeah going to be practicing with uh, the clock reads this week in preparation for our fish after party show at the Thunderbird, which was a really great place, by the way. We played a show there on Friday. Chalk Dinosaur did. It was a three-piece show. And uh, yeah, that place was really sweet. I was very impressed. I haven't been there in probably 10 years, but probably 10 years exactly, actually. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a nice looking room, nice looking room. Um, uh, pretty good sound. Um, sound guy was really nice. Mike, we like Mike. Um, we got him at the Rex too. And Mike and George, you know, two great, two great sound guys in Pittsburgh that I, uh, I like working with. And, um, What's up this week? Yes. So I got to learn some songs for that Clock clock Dinosaur show. I'd probably like to have some, some kind of open-ended but quasi-structured idea to, to bring to the table for that. But um, we've got an agenda for things we're going to do for this first practice. So I'm going to do my best to be prepared for that. What else What else I have going on? Oh, yeah. Winston, he's coming over to record. That's great. I'm so happy to finally be uh, working with this guy. Um, yeah, so we're done with shows for the year. And uh, we don't have a show until uh, January 24th in Chicago with a band called Chachuba, who are from Chicago. And then uh, another band from Michigan, I think, called Biomassive. Um they're in a very similar vein uh, as what Chalk Dinosaur does as a four-piece band. So the um, Jamtronic, as you'd call it, where it's basically just means you know a lot of a lot of dance beats with synthesizers, a real drummer. Um, well, no, it doesn't always have to be a real drummer, but just just a, a hybrid combination of electronic and jam music. Jamtronic. That makes sense to me. Some people don't like that term, but really, that is accurate. And uh, I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop this now. I want to drink some water. And, uh, yeah, I've run out of things to say. So, yeah, have a good, have a good week. And, um, uh, yeah, hopefully get another guest on here soon and uh, have have a little bit more uh, three-dimensional conversation to share with you guys. Okay, I'll see you later. <laughs>